We've been working through, working our way through the book of Malachi together, these words from the prophet who preached this uh, many, many, many years ago. And as he preached this, he said that it was a burden. If you look back to Malachi chapter 1, uh, the oracle of the word of the Lord, that word oracle means a burden. Malachi was burdened with this message to share to the people belonging to God about their relationship with the Father, about the habits that they had formed, about how they had been uh, rescued from captivity and uh, ransomed. Uh, by by God and brought out of slavery, freed from that, and yet they were misusing their slavery or misusing their freedom, uh, living lives almost of slavery again, and forming habits in their life uh, that should have been habits of worshiping the Father and proclaiming His names, His name, but instead uh, formed habits uh, that were all about themselves. They were very self-centered. They 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 began using uh, their entire life not for the glory of the Father, but instead for the glory of themselves. And so, uh, so they had these disputes in the book of Malachi where God would say something and they would have uh, a question back to the Lord. Well, how have we done that? Prove that to us. Uh, teach us, God, uh, what, when you say that we have sinned in this, in this particular way and we're going to dispute with you, God, uh, teach us or show us how we've done that. We talked about last week how the Lord brought out um, even like their possessions, how their possessions had been uh, possessing them in a sense. And so with that, uh, the Lord called them out on that and they questioned, well, what do you mean? How have we drifted away from you? What do you mean that we're far from you? How can we return when we feel like we've been with you the, the entire time? And so the Lord had to correct them in that and teach them in those ways. And we, we reached the end here. And the end of the book really um, is, is not one of those like happy endings, you know, where everything becomes like, you know, like a, like a fairy tale, like everyone gets, the, uh, you know, like the prince gets the girl or the princess gets the prince or whatever the case may be. Uh, they ride off on a unicorn and there's Skittles flowing behind them. What Whatever you think is like perfect or perfection, whatever that looks like, uh, then there's not that happening. Instead, the book or this message, this, this burden, this oracle from the Lord ends with judgment. It doesn't end with like this happiness, like, okay, things are going to be great. Instead, it ends with this, I've been teaching you, you've been disputing against me, so know that judgment is coming, that there will be a separation from those who serve me and those who do not serve me, from those who fear me and those who do not fear me. There will be judgment, judgment upon uh, those who are unrighteous and judgment upon those who are, are righteous. A separation, a division will happen by the judgment just judge by the one who can judge correctly. And so with that, it's not like, again, it's not this happy ending. Instead, it's almost a sad ending, this convicting ending of we better rightly place our fear upon the Lord. So read with me. I'll read out loud. You're just reading your head. Uh, and I'll read uh, verses uh, starting in verse 13 of Malachi chapter 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and and they escape. So there's this questioning here. Uh, the people belonging to God uh, are frustrated with God and they begin to speak against God. And I know that we're good people here in this room this morning. I mean, you, you, did, good, you did good by getting up and getting here and so you are good, moral people. You're, you're, you're all about making good decisions, right decisions. You're trying to be helpful to yourself, helpful to your family. You want to make these good decisions. And I know none of us in this room would ever, we would ever question 
or speak against God. We would never question his decisions. We would never look at the things in the world, the brokenness, and say, why? Why, God, are you allowing these things to happen? We would never say uh, things like, it seems as if evil is prospering. It seems like if we just uh, live our life like everyone else, then we might prosper too or have a blessed life too. We would never say things like they're saying here, like evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Because you know how you are as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. Like if I was to put God to the test right now, lightning would happen and it would strike me right on the head and I would be, I would be done for, right? I mean, we're, we're these type of people. But for whatever reason, arrogance came in, pride came into these people, and they began not to fear the Lord anymore. Instead, they began to question the Lord. They began to become arrogant almost in their, uh, in their thoughts about who God is. But, but, but we can understand this to some degree, I think. I mean, looking around at the world today, and I mean, do we not uh, think often that the evil who are oftentimes ruling over certain things or living their life full of sin and unrighteousness, it seems as if they're the ones who are prospering. They're the ones whose lives are going in the right direction. We all long for certain things, and it seems as if the evil ones are receiving those things, those things that we want. Why is it I'm trying to delight in the Lord and expect the same results, but those who are not delighting in the Lord, but instead are delighting in evil, are getting the things that I so long to get. So again, verse 13 through, uh, through 15, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. Think about that. Have you ever had that moment where, um, and I'm not talking about serving God like at vacation Bible school or Sunday school. I'm talking about serving God with your entire life. I'm talking about when you're having to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, you know, putting God first and saying, I'm going to serve God in this, in this way, that I'm going to show mercy to the world. I'm going to act as a just person. I'm going to act with patience towards a certain person or a certain, uh, a thing that's going on. And in that, uh, you, you begin to think that the direction that you're headed may just end in vanity. That maybe I'm just doing these things in, in vain. Uh, like Ray and I spoke about this morning in Galatians 6, 9, that we do give up when we grow weary. We don't continue on. We bang our head against the wall and say, why are we doing this? Again, I'm not just talking about serving inside the church building walls. I'm talking about everyday life that you wonder, I want to produce joy and patience and gentleness in my life. I want God to be... I want God to be living through me, transforming me into his likeness. Yet, what will I gain from this? Because we live in a world full of gain. Verse 14 again, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning? Can you imagine being the Israelites and walking in the desert for 40 years? How many of them gave up? You know the story. How many of them turned from the Lord? How many of them broke covenant because it got difficult, because it got hard, because they, saw, they thought that this walking around, this discipline, this change of life isn't worth it? Shouldn't, it, shouldn't we just go back to captivity? Shouldn't we just go back to slavery? Wasn't it better for us to live under Pharaoh's rule instead of the Lord God's rule? We still struggle with those things today. You know, we sing songs about the Spirit moving inside of us and moving us, yet we stay in the same spot. 
Like, how can we sing that song about the Spirit moving and changing us and stand still? It's almost hypocrisy to think about it. There needs to be some sort of movement, yet we fear the movement. We fear what might be next. We fear if we're praying, Lord, transform us, and then we feel that transformation coming inside of us into the likeness of Jesus. What might happen next? Oh, no, you might move us to Scotland. Oh, no, you might move us to southeastern New Mexico. Oh, no, we may have to move to Texas, whatever the case may be. We begin to feel what might be next, not trusting in the Lord's ultimate conclusion. See, what happens is, is when we look at things upon this earth, our vision gets real narrow. We look at the things, and we, we even know that God is seeing the same things. We pray that, God, I know that you know what's going on. I know that you're all-knowing. I know that you saw yesterday. I know that you see today. And I know that you see tomorrow and the rest of the future. I know all those things, and I'm trusting in those things. But do you see what's happening in my life right now? Are you familiar with the suffering that I'm going through? Do you see the tragedy? Do you see the hurt? Do you see the pain that I'm experiencing? Do you see how things are not going in the right direction in our in our city, in our country, in our nation, our state, in our world? Do you see these things? And so we, we begin to think that God is like us and that though he is seeing the same things and like we're seeing the same things, we think that he's like us and that he would draw the same conclusions. We look at the pitiful, broken world that we're in and we say there's no hope. Serving God is in vain. And so, so if, if I continue to live this way, then these things will happen. Can I just say to you this morning that God does see the things that you're going through, and yet he is drawing a different conclusion. He knows the end. He knows final victory. He knows what his son has done. He, is, he saw it firsthand. In fact, he sent his son to do it. And so with that, he also knows what happens in the very end, the final battle, the final victory. He knows who will receive all glory and honor. He knows who will be king over all, who will be worshipped over all. And so with that, we have to remember that when things become difficult, when we begin to misplace fear and not place it rightly upon the Lord, the Lord is not drawing the same conclusions that our wee little human minds are drawing. When you think that this must be the end, this must be where life is headed, this must be where serving God is headed, if I say yes to the Lord and I serve Him, then it must be vacation Bible school. When we say those things and say that's the only conclusion, no, know that you don't know everything and only the Lord does and allow him to be the one who's drawing the conclusions. The author of Hebrews says he's the author and perfecter of our faith, meaning he is the one writing it out. You are not. We are just a part of this grand story that he gets all the glory. So these people in verses 13 through 15 misplace their fear. They allowed fear of other things to infiltrate their life 
and then allowed those things to dictate their actions, their emotions, their relationships, their accountability to the Lord, their obedience to the Lord, their trust in the Lord. Can I say to you this morning, don't allow shame or guilt or fear or emotions to be the things drawing conclusions for your life. Don't allow those things to draw the conclusions. Instead, allow God through Christ, through His Scripture, to draw the conclusions for your life. Shame says, I'll never be good enough, so I'll just do what I want. Guilt says, uh, all of serving God is in vanity. I might as well just, just be this guilty person. Fear says, but what if I die? What if I don't have enough money? Or what if my money runs out? What if I get tired? What if this person I'm trying to help never changes? Fear says those things. And when fear is misplaced, we begin to trust in the wrong things. Think about this. If you fear spiders, what is your hope in? Your hope is probably in the bug man or flip-flop. You know what I'm saying? Take your flip-flop and smash that bug. You put all your hope in that. I don't have my flip-flops on today. How am I going to conquer spiders? It's silly, but that's often what fear does. When we fear, when our fear is misplaced, we begin trusting in our chanclas instead of the things that we should truly trust in. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we must rightly place fear. When fear is misplaced, we begin to trust in the wrong things. I fear not having enough money, so I'll keep getting more. We keep working and working and working, thinking that if we have enough money, we won't have to fear anymore. When fear is misplaced, we begin trusting in the wrong things. God is not a merciful God. And so I must be as religious as I can be, because if I make one mistake, I may be doomed for hell. I must be good enough. So I'm going to keep working and working until I wash my own sins away, until I'm religious enough, I'm moral enough, until I've not done enough of those bad things and I'm doing more good things. When fear is misplaced, we begin to trust in the wrong things. When, when fear is misplaced and we trust in the wrong things, we say things like, I don't want to be alone, so I'll do whatever it takes to find companionship. We forget about what Scripture tells us in Matthew 28 and Joshua 1, where the Lord God Himself promised never to leave us. But if we're not satisfied in Him and Him alone, if we're not delighting in His companionship, then we will look for companionship in other things and other people. If our fear is misplaced, if our fear is misplaced, we will trust in the wrong things. We think about Matthew 10:28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Where should our fear be placed? It should be rightly placed upon the Lord. The people belonging to God in Malachi chapter 3 in those final verses of of chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, their fear was misplaced. And when fear is misplaced, we begin to take possession of our own life. We begin to think that it belongs to us. Everything that we have belongs to us. My soul, my life, my heart, my future, my career, my marriage, my schooling, my friendships, my Little League baseball team, we think it belongs to us. In reality, it does not. We talked about last week. Christ purchased us with his blood. When our possessions take possession of our own life and our fear is misplaced and is not rightly placed in the Lord, our possessions begin to control our actions. If I have these things, 
people will begin to respect me. If I accomplish these things, people will see how good I am. And if people see how good I am, then surely God will see how good I am. And we begin to make idols of ourselves. And I know you didn't wake up this morning thinking, Oh, great idol, Matt, how I want to serve myself. Oh, great idol, Matt, how wonderfully beautiful you are. I know you didn't say those things because most of you, except for a couple of us, don't have any Matt. But we begin to make idols of ourselves when we allow ourselves to control us. Simply said, this is why Jesus said to follow him means to deny self. When we misplace our fear, and our fear is not in the Lord, we begin acting like these people of old, the ancient, the ancient people of God. They forgot that they were a people belonging to God. They erased God and filled in the blank with something else. We are a people belonging to self. Or we are a people belonging to money. We are people belonging to possessions. We are people belonging to shame, to guilt, to fear, to slavery, whatever the case may be. They forgot that they are a people purchased by God, saved by God, ransomed by God, a people belonging to God. If you do not have that identity this morning, if you do not know with confidence that you belong to the Lord, Paul writes it clearly for us in Romans chapter 10. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and he will be Lord of your life, belonging to him and him alone, rightly placing your fear in who can, who can kill body and soul in hell, rightly placing your fear upon the just judge the Lord God. When we have a right view of the Lord, then we will rightly place our fear in Him and Him alone. If we do not have reverence and fear of the Lord in a right way, we will begin to or continue trusting in our fear, trusting in things of this world, and fearing things that should never be feared. Don't allow your fear to be misplaced. Direct your day or, or direct your daily actions. Don't allow your misplaced fear to direct your entire life. Again, if you have a fear of spiders, you do everything you can to combat that fear. You bring over insect folk. You got your flip flops. You got somebody in your house that can take care of the spiders for you. You run away from them. You do all these things because you're afraid of spiders. And you become almost, and I know it's silly, but you almost become obedient to the fear of the spider. Well, I can't go in that room anymore because there may be a spider over there. I can't go to that store anymore because one time we were at Dollar General and they had this infestation of bugs, and so I can't go back in there because I'm definitely afraid of bugs. And so those things, those fears begin to control your life. And in controlling your life, they become Lord of your life. The second part of, of this misplaced fear is that these people began to envy things they shouldn't have envied. When fear is misplaced, we begin to envy the earthly. We begin to think that uh, these things upon the earth are things that we should live for. Uh, that's why uh, when they said, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of, of hosts? Verse 15, and now we call the arrogant blessed. What happened? They began looking at the 
be arrogant, saying they are blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So they begin fixing their vision upon uh, horizontal relationships. They begin looking at other people, saying, I'm going to compare my life to those other people. And now I'm envious of these unrighteous folk. Envy. This envy that the people of God had was not was not a holy a holy jealousy that would stir them upward and onward, but instead it was the envy of others that they thought that what others had would lead them to happiness and contentment, but instead was leading them to destruction. Ultimately, this envy that they had was leading them to a lack of confidence or trust in God. When they looked at other folk on the, on the world and the earthly relationships that they had and they saw these evildoers prospering, who did they question? They didn't question the evildoers and their actions. They didn't question their prosperity, but instead they questioned the character of God. They began to question trusting in God, placing their or keeping their confidence in God. This is what envy does to us. And the same applies to our life today. Envy of others, envy of others' happiness could be fatal to your confidence in God. Comparing yourself to others will always leave you either discontent or the opposite of that, arrogant. You may become discontent with the relationship you have with the Father because so-and-so has a better relationship with the Father. But they're evil. Look at them. They're such a terrible sinner, and I'm such a good person, yet they're the ones receiving all the blessings from the Lord. And in our comparison and our discontentment of those things, we become arrogant. Look how great I am. You become prideful, thinking, I deserve all these things. Have we not served you, God? Have we not been a people belonging to you? And yet the evil are the ones prospering. And so let's just be like them. Envy, in comparison, blinds us to reality. Envy is the enemy of contentment. And so what happens is when envy, in comparison, leaks into your life, or infiltrates your life and it becomes to, begins to persuade your life, it leads you to a place not of reality but of disillusion. Your vision is blurred. You begin thinking that this must be the way that God wants me to serve him. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it's vain to serve God. If you hear those things come up in your mind, should I continue to serve the Lord? Should I be faithful to the Lord? Should I continue to trust the Lord despite the things that are going on? The answer is always yes. We never distrust the Lord. We always trust the Lord. So if you have the question this morning or tomorrow or 10 years from now, do I remain confident in the Lord? The answer is always yes. Not because I'm saying that, because I'm just uh, a young guy, but because the ancient words of the Lord say continue to trust in Him. Allow Him to be the one that's drawing conclusions. Envy in, com in comparison blinds us to reality. Envy, the enemy of contentment. When you're not content, serving the Lord, ask, your, ask yourself, why? Why am I discontent? Is it because somebody has something better than I have, that I want? I love this ancient saying, to, to covetous is he for whom God is not enough. 
Envy leads us to think that God is not enough. And in thinking that God is not enough, we have a misplaced fear. Envy envy aids in making an idol of yourself or others. Envy does not lead to honoring God. Instead, it leads to judgment. So this is why we fast. This is why we pray. We need to be less self-centered and more God-centered. We need to be less trusting in our own self and more trusting and confident and obedient to God and God alone. Again, the people of God were drifting further and further away from being the people belonging to God. Instead, they were a people that were becoming a people belonging to themselves and the things that they think that they own. A right fear means we understand we're not the ones doing the work. We're not the ones doing the salvation work. We're not the ones holding this world together. We're not the ones ultimately in control, but instead when we place our fear correctly upon the Lord, we understand that He knows all, sees all, is all-powerful, that He knows what is best and can draw the best conclusions. And I feel like He already has and has the future completely planned for us. Move to verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord. That's a tale of two, two different folks here. A, a tale of two different types of people. Those who have a misplaced fear, a fear of, them, uh, you know, of things upon this earth, and those who have a rightly placed fear. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. There are those who misplace their fear and place their fear in things upon this earth, either emotions or physical things or people or whatever the case may be. And then there were those who were putting their, their fear in the Lord and the Lord alone. Verse 16 again. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. This is like people of God, holy, righteous accountability. This is saying, you know what? You've misplaced your fear. Your fear is in the wrong things. We need to minimize those fleeting things and maximize the eternal king. And so let's fear the Lord and the Lord alone. Let's rightly place our fear. Let's understand who does the ceremonial washing, who cleanses us from our sin. Let's understand who rescued us from captivity. Let's understand who is who is sustaining all of life. Let's understand who together we should be placing our delight in. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 17. This is where it gets really, really, really good. Because we we think that we can earn favor of the Lord. We think that we can do enough uh, ceremonial washings. We can do enough religious things. We can do enough good things in our life that might make us find favor in the Lord. We even fear that as church people. Uh, I want to find favor in the Lord, so I'm going to constantly do these things. And I'm going to make sure that I've checked every box at least twice, even if I'm lying. I'm still going to try and do my best to earn the favor from the Lord. We cannot. We cannot earn favor from the Lord. We cannot do enough. We will never do enough. Instead, this is what happens. Verse Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. These people who had a right fear of the Lord, rightly placing their reverence upon the Lord, their total worship upon God, understanding who He is, understanding His character, His justice, understanding His judgment, His wrath, understanding His love, His grace, His mercy, understanding His patience with us, 
They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Here's here's the, the blessedness of what happens here. The Lord who just spoke to us last week in this scripture about the treasured possessions that become possessed that become uh, maybe possessing us the things upon this earth that we hold on to so dearly verse 17 says that the Lord makes us his treasured possessions uh, there's a, a, a battle in my family that goes on, uh, and I should say this to you, my grandmother passed away yesterday, 90 and a half years old, but there's this battle that goes on in our family, uh, and, uh, and it's a cool little battle that, um, that is left unfinished until eternity, and uh, I'm hoping to have this, this conversation in eternity with my grandmother. But this battle of who is the favorite grandchild, like I know who it is with confidence, but I don't want to be too arrogant. You know what I'm saying? But I know who it is. And I've already told my cousins a number of times who it is. And they disagree with me, but you know what? I'm a pastor. (laughs) And so I'm used to being disagreed with. Here's the thing. I longed for, and so, and, and one of my cousins, we fight about this often. I longed for to be called my grandmother's treasured possession. You know what I'm saying? Like, Granny, just say it. Come on, I won't tell anybody else until tomorrow. Just say it that I am your favorite. She never said that. She hinted towards it. Okay, she hinted towards it. We don't have to guess with the Lord. We are his treasured possessions. Do you know how we can know that with confidence? Because he sent his son to take your place. Thank you, Bill Boss. He sent his son to take your place. His one and only son, the one he should treasure above all, he sent to sacrifice for you. And this is what happens. This is what happens when we understand, when we understand that we are now God's treasured possessions. When we understand that, our fear of Him grows. Not just I'm afraid of Him, but also the other side of fear, I revere Him. I worship Him and Him alone. I serve Him and Him alone. I guarantee you can ask anyone in my family, just the hinting that my grandmother said that made me think I was her favorite made me want to serve her more. Not out of duty. C.S. Lewis says this. We shouldn't be dutiful people. Like I'm only serving the Lord because I have to. But instead we understand we are his treasured possessions. C.S. Lewis says this. A perfect man would never, would never act out of a sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love for love of God, for love of others. Duty is like a crutch. It's a substitute for a leg. Most of us, because we are imperfect, we need the crutch at times. But, C.S. Lewis, but of course it is idiotic to sue the crutch when our own legs, our own loves, our tastes, our habits, etc., our delights, can do the journey on their own. When we understand The Lord has made us his treasured possessions. 
and that he sent his one and only son to be the sacrifice for us. No longer do we serve him out of duty and obligation, but we are obedient to him out of love. Verse 18, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. You cannot serve both God and money. You must serve one. One will be master of your life. Who will it be? Joshua says, As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And our household says the same thing. The Lord is it, and we will serve Him because we understand we are His treasured possessions. And then it ends with a, with a dramatic great picture here. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Those who do not fear the Lord, those who have not confessed Christ as Lord, those who, are not, who have not been purchased with the blood of Jesus, those who have not been saved, those who are still full of sin and evil and arrogance, all these things will be sent through a refiner's fire and nothing will be left. For those of us who are saved, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we also will go through a refiner's fire, but we will be able to offer up things to the Father in worship of Him because we have been <laughs> purchased by Jesus. Verse 2 of chapter 4. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Think of this for a second. There's two things I want to I finish with here. Number one, verse one talks about this fire, this burning blaze, this hot oven that's going to come and consume these people. This burning blaze that will, that will bring scorching to sin. That will remove sin and all those who possess it. And then verse 2 talks about also a great ball of fire that many of us have been burned by before. Yet with this ball of fire, in it, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So this burning blaze that's talked about in verse 1 of chapter 4 is coming to scorch away all sin and those who remain in it. And then in verse 2, the Lord sends his healing son of righteousness that will come and save sinners. Come and those who have been purchased by his blood will go out leaping like calves from the stall, full of joy, full of perfection, because of the treasured Son of God. Understand this. Edward says this. No one, no one can find favor or honor with God through religious washings or culturally prescribed dietary regulations. These people were all about this. You know, they thought if like, we lived perfectly, if we did all these things, if I gave at least some to the church or to the temple, if I showed up to worship whenever I could, 
that this would ultimately remove my sins and make me find favor in the eyes of the Lord. Everybody else goes on to say, in fact, if you rely on these activities, you are in deep trouble because you are actually avoiding God. If I continue to put my trust in ceremonial washings and uh, animal sacrifices and my hope in my own actions, I'm avoiding the work that God has already done. Only God can make you truly clean. And here's the amazing news. Our sin, our own sin, it contaminates us. And no one has the power to, no one on this earth, none of us in this room, has the power to get rid of that sin. Only Christ. And when Christ cleans us on the inside, so we are clean on the outside. And I think this picture here of these leaping calves from the stall, maybe it's because they've been locked up all winter. They've been captive to a barn. And finally the sun is shining. And there's hope. The clouds have been moved away. It's not so dreary anymore. It seems as if things are going to grow and life is going to happen. And maybe they're exiting the barn because of that and they're leaping for joy. But I think it's more like Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son who, who mostly wasted his life away. Hey dad, I, I know you're a good dad and all. And I know that you have all these things planned for my life and you have this great inheritance for me and that you want me to have identity in our family's name. But I want to rebel against that. I'm going to live for myself. So if you could go ahead and give me my payment, the thing, the thing that I deserve the most, the money, the possessions that I deserve the most, and I'm going to live for myself. Jesus goes on to talk about how this prodigal son wasted his entire life away. His possessions, his, his life, his name wasted away. And he finds himself eating, eating with pigs. Now I know in our world, and Gary and I have seen this at stock shows, some pigs are eating really good, okay? But these pigs were not. It's not the store, that's not, it's not stock show pigs here. What does the son do? He recognizes, you know what? I need to return to the father. The only one, the only one worthy of me returning to is my father. And so what does he do? Luke chapter 15, he goes back to his father. And his father does not lord shame over him. He does not point his finger and say, you are guilty. He recognizes as this, as this son is returning home, you already know how guilty you are. You had a misplaced fear. You trusted in things of this world. And you began to live for self and self alone. And now as you're returning to me, I know you're not coming to ask for another handout. I see it in your face. I see your emotion. I know who you are. I know how much shame you are deserving of. I know how much guilt you are deserving of. But instead, you know what I'm going to do? Though you should be the one to be sacrificed... Let's throw a party and sacrifice the fatted calf. And so they do. The dad says to the servants, Hey, the best one, bring it out. Let's sacrifice that instead of my son. <laughs> the brother, like myself so many times, crosses his arm in anger. You're going to welcome him back and try to throw shame and guilt upon him because he's good church folk. 
I've been here with you the whole time. I know, and I, you, you should be the one. Like, that should have been me. I, I should be eating that. We should be partying for me. Look how good I am. Oh, if you only knew. My treasured possession is returning. My treasured possession is returning. And so I think in this case in Malachi chapter 4, mostly the reason why these simple little cows are jumping for joy, and this may be reading way too much into it, but these calves that are jumping for joy are jumping for joy because they don't have to be sacrificed. The sacrifice has been made. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And so you go out leaping like calves from the stall. And in the same way, this is how you go out leaping like calves in the stall. You recognize, I'm not telling you to go out like a bunch of heifers today. Okay, don't, don't hear that. Y'all are running out here like a bunch of calves, like a bunch of heifers and jump around. You go out leaping like calves with joy because you understand, please understand this, as the treasured possession of God, you understand the sacrifice has been made. Jesus has paid it all. His blood has purchased you. And so the things that you're living for are not worth it. The things that are lording over your life are not worth it. The shame, the guilt that even religious folk deal with every day, trying to find favor and get rid of that, it's not worth it. Recognize that Christ has paid it all. And you, as his treasured possession, he sent his one and only son to be that sacrifice, to take your place, so that in the end, when judgment comes, you will not be judged, but instead Jesus will be judged for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for taking my place. And I'm saying that selfishly, I know. So continue to convict me of that. Thank you for taking our place so that we can, really simply, so that we can rest in you. No longer toil, no longer live a life full of burden, but instead see your grace and your mercy. God, help us to understand that this morning. I pray, God, that you would continue to move in our hearts and our souls, that those in this room this morning who who say they're not worthy of being a treasured possession, God, continue to show them through your word who they are in you, how you see them, how you view them. Prodigals running home to you. Those of us who are religious, who misplaced fear, begin trusting in ourselves and our own actions, thinking we're going to continue to find favor in your eyes. God, help us to help us to even see our own life as you see us through the lens of Jesus. God, your word, your spirit, ask us willing to let Christ be Lord of our life. God, I pray this morning that we would allow that. That we would be obedient to you. That Jesus truly would be Lord of our life. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We'll sing a song of invitation. I stand